0: Well, baptisms are brilliant because um, they give us an amazing opportunity to look back at what it is that we have first put all of our trust in and hope in. When when, uh, the people who are being baptized this morning come and and give their testimonies, I'm sure it will bring back so many memories about what it was like when you first believed. Um, So it would be appropriate that as we continue our sermon series in John, we arrive at John chapter 3, where you have this amazing conversation between um, Jesus and Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus is the teacher of Israel. He is the top theologian. He is the source of information um, on who God is and what it means to be one of God's people um, in Israel at that time. And then you have Jesus, who we know and now believe is the teacher. He's the teacher of the universe. When you're applying and and you're looking to go to university, um, you have to look at what the entry requirements are. Um, you might go online, look at the university's website or look at the prospectus and you'll see your, you'll look at your course and it might say requires a um, certain number of A's or B's or C's or a certain amount of criteria that you might have achieved through school to enter this course. So basically they're being exclusive, they're looking for a certain calibre of person in order to go on the course and complete it. But what we find out in John 3 is that the kingdom of God, if it was had an entry requirement, it would be nothing. The entry requirements to enter the kingdom of God are nothing. In fact, high flyers need not apply. Spiritual high flyers need not apply. see, Christianity is for people like you and me. It's for people who, are, who recognize that they're defeated, recognize that they're the down and out, that they're the lowly, at the bottom of the league, the no-hopers, the burnt out, the end of the roaders, and the desperate. That's what Christianity is for. It's not for the high flyers, the spiritually elite. And this conversation in John 3 is designed to end the debate that there could ever be that Christianity is for the spiritually elite. So the first, te- the first lesson that Jesus wants to take Nicodemus through is that you do nothing to contribute to your entry into the kingdom of God. We do nothing to, to contribute to our entry into the kingdom of God. And the, the words will be behind me. the kingdom of God. So Nicodemus said to him, "How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born?" So Jesus answered, "Truly, truly, now any time Jesus says truly, truly, we need to pay attention. He's saying this is true. I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit." Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the... Um, so what we have there is a really, really simple message, but equally is important. And Jesus gives us two really helpful illustrations that we can't mistake. He's basically saying that you do not contribute anything to your spiritual birth in the same way that you contributed nothing in your physical birth. You did not have any influence on when you were born, how you were born, any of the circumstances. In the same way that when you are spiritually reborn, when you become a Christian, you do not contribute to that. The second illustration he gives is that you cannot control the wind. The wind goes where it wants, you can't capture it, you can't move it, you can't influence it. In the same way you cannot influence your salvation so in both cases physical and spiritual god creates you and there are no steps to take to get to god he does it all um it's really important to look at why this is recorded in John's Gospel. Why he decided to write this down as a record for people to look at and see. Well, I think it's it's okay for us to look at this and assume that this is part of us. This is just a summary of a longer conversation. If Nicodemus came to Jesus, I don't think he would have come, got a few answers, and then left. I we can get the impression that Nicodemus would have stayed and they would have talked at length. This is the teacher of Israel, remember, um, coming to Jesus. And we've got to consider Nicodemus. It's not just about the words that were said by Jesus. We've got to recognize who they were said to, because Jesus is being very deliberate. Now, Nicodemus is part of the religious elite. So he is at the pinnacle of Jewish society. He has risen through the ranks because of his level of piety and devotion to God. Um, As I said before, he is the teacher of Israel. He is the source. Um, and he's a Pharisee, so, and the Pharisees were a group of people that were zealous for God. Um, they, they were known for planting synagogues, so they were, they were, they were very um, devoted, but they were also very influential on society and culture at the time. But interestingly, the teacher of Israel didn't understand what it meant to enter the kingdom of God, and I think it's because his culture prevented him from, from seeing what it really meant to enter the kingdom of God. Um, so his culture was built on respect and esteem, and earning your way into the top. Um, and because of that, he had been blinded to the fact that it's all about faith. Nicodemus knew the Old Testament. He knew that it was by faith that Abraham believed, and it was counted to righteousness to him. He knew that it was always about faith. He comes to Jesus with a polite opener. Um, you know, he he comes to Jesus and says. We know that you are a teacher sent from God. Um, that's just an, you know, a polite opening. And Jesus goes straight to his heart. In, in chapter 2 in, in John, we see that um, Jesus knows the heart of every man, the mind of every man. So rather than just kind of playing along with this uh, polite opener, Jesus just goes straight into why Nicodemus is here because he knows why he is. Um, and Nicodemus' response how can a man be born when he is old? Now, Nicodemus isn't just being stupid or playing dumb. Um, he's basically saying, how is it possible that we don't contribute anything? That's, bas- that's, that's pretty much what he's saying. How is this possible? I've built my life on this. All my body of teaching is on this. Um, he's devastated because he now he's now got it confirmed that he, he isn't in the kingdom of God. Of all the people who should be in the kingdom of God, it would be Nicodemus, right? He's risen to the ranks, but he's now devastated that he isn't. See, salvation is not gained by trying harder. Nicodemus came to Jesus to find out, what is this next thing that I need to do to get into the kingdom of God? Well, it's not about anything you do. That's what Jesus wants to say. And Phil Moore puts it really well when he says in his commentary, John wants us to see from one of the very best men in Judea that being good can prevent us from seeing God. So Jesus is basically saying to Nicodemus, unless God does something to you, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. It's not a minor piece of surgery that needs to take place. You don't need to have any um, kinks straightened out. You need to be completely born again. You need to start again. So the question that I want to ask you this morning is, on what basis do you believe God has accepted you this morning? Now, this is something that's really close to my heart because it took me a long time. After I'd committed my life to God and started going to church, it took me a long time to really get this going in my head and actually believing these, the truth of God's grace, Um, and that my own efforts were actually becoming a barrier to God. I remember driving home from church of all places, um, turning to Vanessa and actually saying these words, you know, Vanessa, I don't think I struggle with sin like other people do. (laughs) You can just imagine any angels who might have been in or around the car at the time would, would be wanting to tap me on the shoulder, have you thought about pride, Joe? Have you thought about that? Um, thankfully, I've learned that lesson and I'm continuing to learn it and I have to keep coming back to this truth. Um, but I was, a, I was aware of other people's sins, not aware of the sin of pride in my heart that was festering and growing. I wanted to be seen as a really good Christian. I wanted to be seen as the person who prays the most, the person who knows the Bible the most, the most clever and articulate person, really influential for the kingdom. But that was driving my, my relationship with God. not It wasn't built on his grace. Um, and my life up until that point had always been about pride. It had always been about wanting to be the best at a certain sport or wanting to be known in my classes as being gifted at a certain subject. So when I became a Christian, that pride just found a new home. It found a new home in, in Christian ease and being a Christian. Um, so I was still trusting in my own efforts to please God. It's exactly as what Steve said last week when he said we need to embrace our total inadequacy so that we can have his total sufficiency. Um, And since I've learnt this lesson, I've come to realise that I'm not on my own in struggling with this, that this is something that is pervasive amongst Christianity because it's so hard to truly trust in Jesus and not trust in ourselves. Um, I read a fantastic article recently um, about the issue of self-esteem. Um, and it basically laid out that the consensus for decades has been that low self-esteem is the cause of, of most emotional and relational trouble, um, and that we're taught this from a very early in, stage in life. We can all remember being at school and hearing a lesson, or someone, or visiting speaker come in talking to us about self-esteem. Um, however, research in the last decade has actually begun to challenge this, and this article from Lawrence Slater. Um, wrote in the New York Times she's a psychologist this is in 2002 she said it has been generally accepted until recently that high self-esteem defined quite simply as liking yourself a lot holding a positive opinion of your actions and capacities is essential to well-being and that it's opposite low self-esteem is responsible for crime and substance abuse and prostitution and murder and rape and even terrorism thousands of papers in psychiatric and social science literature suggest this So the consensus is low self-esteem is always bad. However, last year alone, there were three studies of self-esteem released in the United States, all of which had the same central message. People with high self-esteem pose a greater threat to those around them than people with low self-esteem. And feeling bad about yourself is not the cause of our country's biggest and most expensive social problems. The research is original and compelling and lays the groundwork for a new important kind of narrative about what makes life worth living. If we choose to listen, which might be hard, one of this country's most central tenets, after all, is the pursuit of happiness, which has been strangely joined to the pursuit of self-worth. Fascinating, isn't it? Because we've all been taught that self-esteem is is basically at the heart of all of our problems. And it seems as though social sciences are are catching up with the wisdom of the Bible. Because the Bible has always said that humility is to be seen and sought over pride. That it is a greater virtue than pride, you know, God gives grace to the humble and opposes the proud, that promotion, self-promotion can be harmful in the long run, and that our worth is not defined in how we see ourselves, it's how God sees us. Um, An inflated view of ourselves can actually prevent us from seeing God. And she finishes her article by saying this, is there a way to talk about the self without measuring its worth? Why as a culture have we so combined the two quite separate notions of self and worth? She doesn't really come with an answer to that question. And that's because I believe that Christianity is the only place where you find the real answer to that question. That it speaks to the deep need we all have within us for a saviour. That there's no value in self-worth because all have fallen short of the glory of God and we all need to be redeemed. That, so when it comes to entering the kingdom of God, good and bad don't matter It's that we're all sinners, we all need to be saved. So it's not about self-esteem, it's about God-esteem. And if we carry on reading, we get Jesus' second lesson. If you read with me up to verse 15. So Nicodemus says to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, there it is again. Now, that reference to Moses and the serpent in the wilderness um, it references a time in Israel's history. Um, Moses had helped and led them out of captivity from Egypt. They were now in the desert, and the people, the Israelites, began to grumble, complaining about the food, that there wasn't enough water. So God decides to discipline them by sending snakes in, and the snakes bite them. They poison the people, and they, some of them die. So the Israelites respond to this by saying to Moses, please pray to God that we won't die as well. So Moses does this. He comes to God and God says, okay, fashion your own snake, make a snake out of bronze, put it on a pole, lift it high up. Anyone who looks at that snake will be healed of the poison in their, well, wherever it is in their body. So Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, in the same way that the Israelites looked at the snake and were, were cured, we need Um, to respond to the greater serpent i.e. the devil his poison by looking to the one that god lifts up and believe and will be cured and saved and healed and redeemed so jesus is putting it pretty plainly again we just need to believe that's all it takes you just need to believe but believe in what what is it that we're believing in this morning we have to, to carry with us a, a, a good and solid understanding of what goes on on the cross. So when Jesus was hung on the cross, God did an important thing. He transferred all the guilt and shame that was on us. He put, transferred it onto Jesus, who was a sacrifice for us. But, and we don't often talk about this, um, God also transfers the the righteousness and the good life that Jesus has lived onto us. So that when God looks at us, he sees a good and righteous person. That's how we become holy. So that when Jesus died, we died with him. So the symbolism of the baptism, when you go down into the water, you're saying, I am dying to my old life. And that when you come up out of the water, you're representing what happens when Jesus was resurrected, they're saying, this is my new life. I'm risen with Christ. It's a phrase that's used in the New Testament all the time, risen with Christ. So the people getting baptized today are saying no to themselves, and they're saying yes to trusting in Jesus and what he does for us. So the message to Nicodemus is simple. You have to look to someone else. You've got to stop looking at what is within you, To get into the kingdom of God, you have to look at Jesus. Um, Tim Keller puts it really well. He says, Jesus wants us to know that we are more flawed than we dared believe, but we are more loved than we could ever imagine. Which leads us on to Jesus' third lesson, which is that Jesus came to save and not to condemn. See, Nicodemus was part of a group of people that thought that when the Messiah came, he was just going to condemn the rest of the world and Israel was going to be saved. Jesus tells him emphatically, this is not the case. I have come to save, not to condemn. So we get up to, reading up to verse 21, and this is one of the most famous Bible verses that we know because it's quoted all the time. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that through the world um, sorry but in order that the world might be saved through him whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of god and this is the judgment the light has come into the world jesus and people love the darkness rather than light because their works were evil for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed but whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. It does beg the question: if it's so simple, and if it's not about us, why do people not respond? Well, I think Jesus is saying here that people don't respond. Um, where am I? People don't respond because they prefer to live in darkness, um, and this culture can prevent people from seeing Jesus. Now, it's really important here to see that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. So Nicodemus, in doing this, is representing culture. Um, because Nicodemus was respected, he was the teacher of Israel, um, he, had, you know, he was esteemed by many in the culture and society, um, he had to come at night. If he came to Jesus at light, in front of everybody else, that would have been shameful for him to do this, because there would have been the hint of doubt that if Nicodemus is having doubts about what it is that we believe, then should we all? And Nicodemus has a, a reputation to uphold. So he comes to Jesus at night and he comes to him in darkness because he, he's having doubts about what it is that he's built his life on. He was clearly troubled. He clearly wanted to be part of the kingdom, but he knew he wasn't. But the great thing is um, that there is a glimmer of light in Nicodemus's life. So we, we read in the rest of John, in chapter 7, we see Nicodemus actually defending Jesus amongst his peers. They want, to put, um, they want to kill Jesus, but he says this man deserves a fair trial. So we see that his heart has softened towards Jesus. Um, and then in chapter 19, um, towards the end of John's gospel, we see um, Jesus is being laid in the tomb. And Nicodemus brings perfumes to go with Jesus' body to for the smell. And so you see there's a great affection for Jesus. So his heart has been changed. So you can, you can it doesn't explicitly say this, but you can look at what's happened here and say it looks as though Nicodemus has had, a, has, done, has, has had a change of heart. God has done something in him to change this way of thinking. And the irony is the same wind that Jesus spoke about that you cannot control seemed to be pushing Jesus towards the kingdom of heaven. The question I want to leave you with this morning, is the spirit tugging on your heart in any way? Now for Christians, how do we respond to this? Those that have been in and around church life and church culture, how do we respond to this? Well, we know these truths, don't we? We know about the grace of God, but we all admit that it's hard to live this life. It's hard to live in a way where we truly believe it. The gospel isn't just our way into the kingdom, it's the way along. The, the, the message of needing to be born again isn't just our way in, but it's our way along. Any moment that you think you've graduated from knowing that truth, that you've attained some kind of holiness or knowledge, that you can graduate from the very simple message that you need God's grace, then you, you've started to go wrong, we need to be corrected. It's like what Paul said to Timothy um, Timothy was basically like his understudy and Paul, this man who planted churches all across the Middle East, he said this about himself, here is a trustworthy saying, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of which I am the worst. It's quite strange to hear Paul, the great apostle Paul saying that about himself, but he's teaching Timothy how to think about himself. It's almost like a, a, a mantra he's giving him, something to recite and be remembered, that basically a Christian is someone who thinks that they're the worst person they know. It could sound harsh to say that about yourself, but what it basically means is that you're so focused on the state of your own heart, you're not aware of what's going on in other people's hearts. You're not comparing yourself to other people, and you're not doing what Nicodemus and the culture and society at the time were constantly doing, were elevating themselves above other people because of their level of piety. Jesus came to completely destroy that. The crux of of this whole... uh, passage in john this whole conversation jesus is wanting to tell us that the only way to measure ourselves is against god it's not about measuring ourselves about against people who we think are lower than us the other danger for christians is that we could have been in and around church culture we could have been brought up in a in a christian family and never heard this this message that jesus has about the gospel of grace now we use the phrase born again all the time in in church circles don't we it's like it's become Christian jargon. Oh, yeah, born again. You see people being interviewed on the TV. Are you a Christian? Oh, yeah, born again Christian, actually. There's no distinction. There are no non-born again Christians. We are all born again. Um, it's, it's, it's a shame that we've become so familiar with this phrase that we've forgotten its meaning. And for non-Christians here today, people who, who haven't met this Jesus that I'm talking about, um, the challenge for you today is to look beyond the modern culture of merit. So when I talk about university and needing to earn your way and approve your way into to getting onto this course, that basically reflects, reflects a culture of merit that we've built in society, that it's all about being a good person. Jesus comes to say, it's the, when it comes to entering my kingdom, good and bad are not relevant categories. Anyone can come. Um, and Madonna epitomizes this when she says that my drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre that is always pushing me i push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being but then i feel i am still mediocre and uninteresting unless i do something else because even though i've become somebody i still have to prove that i am somebody my struggle has never ended and i guess it never will I think Madonna is basically just communicating uh, the human condition. Jesus comes to us with this radical truth that the gates of heaven are narrow enough to exclude the most moral believer you know, the best person you know who isn't a believer. But they are wide enough to include the most wretched believer. The thief on the cross, for example, done nothing. The thief on the cross had done nothing in his life to warrant entering into the kingdom of heaven. But yet Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. So the gates of heaven are narrow enough to exclude the most moral unbeliever, but wide enough to include the most wretched believer. So I want to leave you with, with this impression that we can come to Jesus like Nicodemus did in darkness not really knowing um, what it is that he's about, not really understanding, but he comes to us with mercy. His response to us with mercy, like it was with Nicodemus, was to say, you can come, you can come, anyone can come. So if you're a Christian and you're struggling with this, I'd love to pray with you. We're going to have the testimonies now, but at some point in the service, at the end of the service, then I'd love to pray with you. This is something that I've walked and I'm learnt and still learning Um, But if you're not a Christian this morning and some of this has resonated with you and you want to be part of God's kingdom, um, then I'd love to pray with you as well.